Ladies and gentlemen, in just five minutes, the Epcot family and GE will celebrate Walt Disney World's 25th anniversary with Illuminations 25. I am Buzz Lightyear. I come in peace. I am no chicken. I will not talk. You are invited to choose your own flight path back to the future port. You know, any wish is possible. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is show number 32 for the week of September 16th, 2007. As always, I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and I want to thank you for tuning in once again. There's not a lot of Walt Disney World news this week, but we have a lot of listeners who called in from the Magic Kingdom to give us their first-hand impressions of the Haunted Mansion, which opened up after a lengthy refurbishment earlier this week. We'll also have some updated information about the Leave Legacy tiles in Epcot, and just a couple of rumors in the Walt Disney World rumor mill, as it's been a relatively quiet week on the news and rumors front. Adam Roth, co-founder of the Celebration 25 event, honoring Epcot's 25th anniversary next month, is going to join me again as we reveal the schedule of events for Sunday and Monday, as well as details about what else is taking place as we join Disney at this historic event. It's something I'll be attending and sponsoring and, as you know, really, really excited about. Jeff Pepper will join me, as always, as we continue with our Epcot retrospective slash DSI Disney Scene Investigation series this week as we take a close look at one of World Showcase's original and still most beautiful pavilions, Japan. And Jeff stays on a little while longer as we're joined by Eric Hollister for the next in our Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge contests. This week, Jeff provides the clues and tests your inner Disney geek, and Eric will also announce the winner of the previous contest. I have a ton of your voicemails to play this week, so be sure to stay tuned to the end of the show for those. I'll also answer a few more of your emails. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. It's been a relatively quiet week over at Walt Disney World, so we're going to combine the news and rumors this week into one section because there's not really a lot to cover. But first, in Walt Disney World news, if you'd like to know the fate of the Epcot wand, John Carigliano from Mouse Times has posted a great video that I'll link to over on this week's show notes, but I will tell you that if you are a fan of the wand, this may not be for the faint of heart because you can see exactly what happened to it and where it is once they took it down. Listener Joe Tortorici emailed me and said he knew that there was some discussion about what's been going on with the Leva Legacy tiles over in front of Spaceship Earth. He recently contacted Disney and received a response which said that the Sculpture Garden is going to continue to remain in Epcot until the year 2020. They can continue to visit the Leva Legacy sta- locator station, which is going to be relocated to the camera center underneath Spaceship Earth. Now, they also have received a number of requests for guests to have their tiles sent to them once they're removed in 2020. Unfortunately, Disney says they're not going to be able to send the tiles to the guests because the panel in which your tiles attached is actually made up of about 350 other guests' tiles as well. But what they are doing is offering a new product only for domestic U.S. Leva Legacy tile guests, where you can take your Leva Legacy photo and text message have it engraved on three different types of granite tiles where they offer a set of four coasters, uh, a 5x7 with a wooden stand, or an 8.5x11 tile with metal stand. 
Now the pricing for these th three items is as follows. The set of four coasters with rubber soles is $60 plus $6.50 shipping and handling. The 5x7 tile with a wooden stand is also $60 with the same shipping and handling fee. And the 8.5x11 with the wrought iron stand is $120 plus $9 shipping and handling. If you are interested in any of these products, uh, you can email Disney at www.ec.legacy at Disney.com. Of course, I'll put that in the show notes. Or you can call 407-560-7235. So it's interesting that not only are they going to be selling your tile that you can now take home and keep as a souvenir, but it looks like 2020 uh, is going to be when these come down, that the 20th anniversary, basically, of the League of Legacy tiles is going to likely mark the end of them, at least in the current form or fashion. For the first time, Disney is going to be moving the Night of Joy experience from the Magic Kingdom over to Disney's Hollywood Studios, starting with the 2008 Christian Music Festival, which is going to be September 5th and 6th next year. There are already some, some confirmed uh, artists, including Mercy Me and Toby Mac, as well as Chris Tomlin and Russia Fools. We'll obviously look for more details uh, about the Night of Joy dates and performers as it gets closer. But yes, it will be moving from the Magic Kingdom over to Disney's Hollywood Studio, making me wonder if the rumors about the Galaxy Palace Theater going away may have some sort of credibility because they've chosen to move this over to there. Again, pure speculation. But in the wake of the recent pin celebration earlier this month, Disney has announced two new events which are going to be taking place next year. The first is Expedition Pins. That's going to take place at Animal Kingdom on May 3rd, 2008. And the second is the annual event that takes place in Epcot. It's going to take place between September 5th and 7th, 2008. That's going to be called PTU School of Trading. And obviously, as we get closer to these events, it's likely that Disney will rele release some more information as well as art about some of the pins that will be made available for those events. Finally, the big news this week is that the Haunted Mansion opened its gates after a lengthy refurbishment to huge lines and incredibly rave reviews. Now, so as not to spoil the attraction and surprises for you, I've chosen to not reveal in detail what changes and additions are in place now that people have actually seen it firsthand, but I did receive a number of reviews and reports live from the parks from a number of listeners about the attraction and the experience on the Haunted Mansion's opening day. Now, there's not really many spoilers in here, but if you don't want to know anything at all, I'd suggest maybe a fast-forward just a little bit so you don't ruin anything. But uh, again, I want to thank everybody who called in and emailed. So here you go. Here's some first-hand reports live from the Haunted Mansion. Hey, Lou, this is Rex coming to you alive, soon to be a-dead, from the grand reopening of the Haunted Mansion. I am third in line. There's a lovely couple in front of me from New Jersey who run faster than I do. But we are patiently waiting to get in. Uh, Jill, the project manager, was very nice and came out and gave us absolutely no information about what happened inside other than everything is exactly what they wanted it to be and it's going to be a fabulous ride. You can be sure that here in about, well, it's a quarter after eight and it's going to open at 9. So I'll be standing here for 45 minutes going, ooh, 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 ooh. All right, I will talk to you after the ride. Thank you. Have a magical day here at Disney's Magic Kingdom. Hey, Lou, love the show. This is Rex coming to you live from Walt Disney World, the Magic Kingdom. Just got off the Haunted Mansion, was third to ride, was in the second car, was third in line, third to ride, and just... 
amazing. The color is bright and vibrant. The the new scene is incredible. Uh, the 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 impression that just pops out at me most is the colors are so vibrant and alive and 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 amazing that that there are things that move that you never realized moved because you couldn't see them moving now they've got some color to them and oh man it's it's amazing just amazing uh the 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 crowd was excited um when we came out of the haunted mansion the line was at uh 45 minutes Okay, so this would have been, we were the first ones on, among the first ones on, and as we walked out the door, the line was 45 minutes long. Uh, got the set of pins. I just can't tell you. The, the color is amazing. Thanks for all you do. Love the show. Again, congratulations on the, the winning the podcast award. Thanks for providing the kind of information that, that makes a once-in-a-lifetime vacation that much more magical because you know when and where to look for things. Thanks, Lou. Thanks to the rest of the guys. Uh, Have a good one. Oh, Rex from Cincinnati. Sorry. Hello, Lou. My name is Gary Saunders from Cape May, New Jersey. Just calling to let you know that I just came out of the Haunted Mansion at Magic Kingdom. Fantastic. Line's a little long, but your pass holder key will get you right in. Uh, some subtle changes, some great changes. The sound is fantastic. It will go right through you. Uh, just experienced for the first time. I'm going back again. And I hope uh, all the listeners will uh, come on down and check it out. The new Haunted Mansion is awesome. Some great changes. And the steps are great. You'll see some portraits, lots of things. You're going to like it. First time, it's hard to figure it all out, but I'll go back again. And I'm a listener a long time, Lou, so keep up the good work and take care. Bye. Hey, Lou, sorry to uh, call you back again. This is Gary from Cape May, and uh, my reflection uh, in uh, Small World, uh, thinking about the Haunted Mansion again, I forgot some of the major things. Uh, Madame Leota, a floating crystal ball. Awesome. Uh, The musical instruments are lit up like you wouldn't believe, and also the headless husbands and the very realistic Madame Leota uh, upstairs. Uh, it is unbelievable. Some of the things I just, you know, thought about as I was going through Small World and forgot to tell you the amazing, amazing job they've done at Haunted Mansion. Okay. Uh, have a great, magical evening. I know I will. Bye. Hi, Lou. It's Brian. I uh, just got done riding the Haunted Mansion. Uh, I just wanted to let you know of some of the upgrades and some of the refurbishment they did. Is, is doing, it did They did a really good job on, on uh, making it a little bit brighter so that you knew that uh, some of the effects and some of the things that are that are in the ride, uh, like the hanging, the guy at the stretch room, the guy that, that's hanging, you could see him a little bit better. Uh, there was some creaking effects, and uh, throughout the ride, a lot of the lighting was better. You could actually tell what some things were. Um, the stairway uh, uh, scene is just spectacular. Some of the effects they used. Uh, just amazing. Kind of interested in how they did it. Um, the uh, the Madame Leota, uh, the floating ball, it, that was great. Uh, great effect. Uh, you can really see some of the things that they do, uh, uh, some of the effects that they do uh, a little bit better. Um, you get into the attic scene. The attic scene is uh, just 
much a, much more of a story. You can see uh, different portraits and banners and different things from the wedding. Uh, the bride, they, it's just amazing. I won't really go into that because uh, I can take forever going into that. Um, and then some of the other scenes they've just uh, uh, refurbished and uh, there's so many things that they've added and changed. Uh, I could go on and on about it, but Anyway, uh, hope you get to see it real soon. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. It really uh, captures uh, what it used to be, and uh, and they didn't really do a bad job on it. So I'm pretty impressed. Uh, look forward to uh, hearing from you and hearing your show. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou, this is Dan Morgan. Uh, just finished our trip this week and got to see the new opening of the Haunted Mansion, which happened on the 13th. Uh, open for most of the day. Unfortunately, it closed down at about 8% technical difficulty so they could get it tuned up for the Halloween party on Friday night. But anyways, everything uh, is fabulous. The new stretch room effects are amazing with a nice little surprise at the end. Um, they've totally redone the ballroom scene so you can really see the dancers, everything pops. The graveyard scene, you can see things a lot better. Um, the scene with the bride up in the attic is a lot more creepy instead of uh, trying to be scary. And... Uh, the bat eyes going down the hallways are pretty amazing, and the Leota head floating around is just pretty cool, too. Just wanted to give you a quick update. Uh, you're doing a great job. Thanks. Thank you again to everybody that called in and sent in emails about the Haunted Mansion. I'll be heading down at the end of the month and must admit that I am incredibly anxious to see what is being done firsthand. I've uh, deliberately chosen not to look at any of the videos or photos that have appeared online so as not to take away from the personal experience. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see what they've done, especially based on such wonderful reviews. So quickly, let's take a trip over to the Walt Disney World rumor mill as there's just two pieces of, uh, of rumors that I want to cover this week. First, a source of mine with close ties to the company has emailed me this week and said that he's learned that the Apple Store has once again been brought up in two different meetings that this person sat in on. Now, this coincides with the rumor from some time ago that a new Apple Store may be the flagship store over for the Western Way development. My source went on to say that usually a large company or an anchor store like this is used to entice other vendors into premium prices. Now, although no contract was provided when requested, it does appear to be a very strong consideration. And it looks like the rumors about the Apple Store coming to be the flagship store over at Western Way may very well be true. Chris Laning, who is the co-host of the Your Neighborhood Stage Community Theater podcast, sent me an email and link that I'll post in the show notes about something that may have a future impact on Disney's Hollywood studios. The article he sent me reports that Grumman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood has been sold, which may or may not affect the copyright and licensing issues which may have caused the placement of the sorcerer's hat at the studios. Now, of course, this change in ownership makes you wonder if this change may lead to new discussions with Disney, that very well may be possible. I still don't expect the Sorcerer's Hat to be picked up and moved anywhere else. But again, we'll keep an eye and see uh, exactly what may be happening. But again, like I said, very short week this week coming out of Walt Disney World news and rumors. But if you have anything that you want to report or anything that you want to share, you can send it over to Lou at WDWRadio.com or call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. You can also discuss all these news and rumors in the WDW Radio message forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Disguise. 
With Epcot Center's 25th anniversary coming up in just a few weeks, I wanted to have Adam Roth, co-founder of the Celebration 25 fan event, back on the show to not only discuss the event itself, but talk about the, the current number of registered attendees, and also, more importantly, announce a schedule event that uh, Adam and the other people have planned. Adam, welcome back to the show, buddy. Thank you, Lou. Adam, there's, uh, there's been a lot of stuff kind of going on backstage at Celebration 25. Since you were on the show last and we met up in Epcot, uh, we've been in contact working on the schedule and the different events and so forth. So I wanted to see if you can kind of give us a brief update on what's been going on uh, over the past few weeks. Well, uh, our registration closed. I- I'm not sure when we last spoke. Was registration still open? Uh, I think we were like a week or two out from registration closing. And I think at that time I told you we had something around 800 people. Uh, our final count has come out to 1,060 um, <laughs> with spots still open for what we call VIPs and stragglers, I guess. Um, so that count is still progressively moving, but to think that we went up an extra 200 in the last week was just great. Wow. Um, but it's only, it's only time, five it's only five times the number of people you expected to have at the event, so... Uh, John John Corigliano just keeps reminding me, and he loves to say it this way. He says, this event has literally exploded. And I completely agree with him. Uh, Again, we only planned for 200, so to think that we times that by five is just a marvel in itself. Incredible. I I told you, you know, when we spoke a long time ago, how excited people were for what's going on, both officially and more importantly, unofficially, and that number is a, is a clear reflection reflection on that. I, I mean, it's a great turnout, and I, I, I'm sure now that we've released our schedule, a lot more people are really excited even more, um, and there's a lot that's going to be going on that weekend, uh, not just necessarily for Celebration 25, but for Epcot itself, so I think we're in for a really great surprise. Yeah, let's let's talk first about the schedule on Sunday and Monday, and then we'll tell the people who are registered or maybe a few of those kind of stragglers um, how they can go about picking up their credentials and some of the little free giveaways and stuff that we have for them. So let, let's go ahead and start with Sunday first and, uh, and how that day is going to go. Okay. Well, uh, registration is set right now to start at 7 a.m. Sunday, September 30th in the morning. Um... From that time on, we will be registering everyone in, and at that time, it will be at the ticket booth closest to the Kennel Club at Epcot. Uh, That should be on the far left-hand side if you look towards the entrance of Epcot. Um, We will be there on Sunday until 10 o'clock doing registrations and what we call video memoirs. Um, At the registration table, you're going to be picking up your name tags, and lanyards, which are generously provided by Lou. Um, You're also going to be getting, if you have signed up for our Illuminations dessert party, that is when you will be getting your official wristband. If you don't have that wristband, you can't get into the party. We have to make sure that we only give out to the people who paid. Um, So the registration registration table for Sunday will close at 10 a.m., and the volunteers or staff or the VIPs that are working that at that time will be leaving around 10.15 to go into the park. 
Uh, John Carigliano's History Walk is the first thing for Sunday, and that's going to start at 11 a.m., and we're meeting at the Mexico Pavilion for the World Showcase to do a quick spot on the World Showcase his on that history. We'll move on uh, over the next hour to Future World East, which is directly uh, behind uh, Mexico. You will start off a test track and go around there. Mind you, during the history walk, we won't be stopping to do the rides together. Um, what we'll do is we'll cover Future World East, all of it in an hour, then give you a break, uh, an hour or hour and a half break. Right now we have it set for an hour. Then we'll pick it up again uh, at 2 p.m. with our history walk of Future World West, which will directly continue through into the history walk of the hub, which will include Spaceship Earth, uh, Interventions, which was formerly Communicore, um, We'll, we'll pick out a lot of great things, and one of the nice things is is that the history walk itself of the hub will have a lot of great uh, information that I think people don't always think about because Future World is known as East and West, and then the hub is really something that, you know, it's just sort of an area you walk by. But there is a lot of history to it, and uh, John has definitely done his research. And for those of you looking for a new experience afterwards, uh, the Fountain View has been converted into an ice cream uh, uh, location, I guess. And for those of you looking for a place to cool off during the day, that'll be open. So after the History Walk, you can go do that. And the nice thing about the way the History Walk is broken up, too, is that you don't have to worry about being with a group, you know, for a four-hour stretch. You know, from 11.30 to 12.30, we'll all be in Future World East. And if you get separated or you have to stop or you need to take a break or, or want to come late or leave early, you'll be able to, f to spot everybody because we won't be in an attraction. We'll be outside the pavilions. And then you have your break for lunch. And like you said, from 2 to 3, you've got the west side of, of Future World and then Interventions. And then if you want to grab some ice cream, do whatever, start making your way over to World Showcase, whatever it is you want to do. You don't have to feel kind of married to the group from beginning to end for the entire day. Right. And uh, again, a after our history walk, we will have another larger break, which is what we really felt was important. That's actually, as of right now, scheduled to be from 4 o'clock to 6.30. Um, and that's a pretty large break. That should, be, that should provide enough time for people to do the attractions in Future World without us that they wanted to do. Um, that's one of the reasons we spaced out the history walk so people can do their own thing, split up from the group, and then catch back up to us later. Um, after that larger break, we have our last official meet of the night, and that's what we're calling the Soren Last Ride of the Night meet. And this is something that is really special to us because it's been on our list of things we wanted to do since the beginning. And when our numbers started to get higher, I think when we passed 600 people, we took it off of our schedule just because we didn't think it would be logistically possible or feasible for our time constraints. Well, when we opened up the event to Sunday, we, we said, this is something that we have to do. Um, and, and when we thought about it, uh, I know I did a lot of thinking on, on the Soren meet, and to think about it, even if our entire group goes in the line and we bump up the the wait time an extra hour, you're going to be standing in line with 
thousand with a thousand other Disney fans, which is a perfect time to talk, meet each other, pin trade if that's what you are interested in. Um, plus, the Soren line just got its new queue enhancements to have the video games on it. Uh, I've seen it. I saw it a couple of weeks ago, and I have to say it's really a great show. In fact, I'm hoping that our videographer will be filming us while we all take part in a group game on there. But I, I think that'll be a great, great way to end off our Sunday night. And we, what we did was we put on our schedule that Illuminations is after that. But we're not doing a group Illuminations meet on Sunday night. So what we're saying is that if you want to do Illuminations, it's up to you. You have a chance to do that. And I, I think the way Sunday's schedule sets out, it, it, it's really relaxed. But at the same time, it gets a lot done. Exactly. So. exactly what I was going to say. That there's a lot to see, a lot to do. But you can kind of do it at your own pace, see what you want to, what you want to do, and then really kind of get ramped up for what's going to happen on Monday. Right. Uh, Monday is always going to be referred to as our main event. Um, that's what it was built around, and that's what it what it really is going to be all about. But Sunday is an excellent addition. When we decided to add Sunday to our schedule, it was just a great way. We had so many ideas on the drawing board for Epcot's <laughs> Celebration 25, and we wanted to make sure that we were doing this the right way and getting in everything we should. So when we opened up Sunday, September 30th also, we, we felt that it was a perfect way to get everything done that we wanted to and make sure that Monday wasn't too crammed or Sunday wasn't too crammed. Everything in our schedule is well-balanced. There's spaces in between so that everyone can handle it. Exactly. And like Sunday, if, you don't, if you're not going to be in Epcot on Sunday or you're not arriving until Monday, that's okay because the registration is going to start again at 7 o'clock same place in front of the kennel club to the left-hand side of the entrance to future world it's outside the gates that's where you can pick up your credentials um epcot opens at nine so we're really going to kind of close registration probably around eight forty-five, i think and then get ready for the for the dedication for monday, right. for monday right because right after epcot opens that's when disney's official rededication ceremony is going to take place over at the fountain of nations plaza right and we are telling everyone, just because we know there are other groups here, um, October 1st is going to be a very busy and very important day in the schedule, and to ensure that you get a good viewing location and you, you don't miss out on anything, we're telling everyone to make sure that they are at the Fountain of Nations Plaza as soon as they can get in, because this will be a packed event. Uh, it's not. It is a public event, so there is no cutoff. But if you want to be close up to the stage, you are going to want to get there as soon as possible. Exactly. And I know I got a question from someone whose uh, family member has special needs, needs to use a wheelchair to get there, and asked if they could go get breakfast before the event. And what I'm saying is that it's probably not wise to spend any time before the rededication doing anything i would say if you really are that hung if you if you really are that concerned about breakfast have it before you come to our event on monday go straight to the fountain of nations stage and be ready for our uh rededication right and then after the official rededication uh takes place with disney what we're going to do is we're going to move to the other side of the fountain of nations plaza kind of plant ourselves right on the Epcot logo that's on the 
World Showcase side for the Celebration 25 group photo. And that'll that'll be our only group photo of the event. Uh, just because it's such a large large group, it's not possible to do it again. We don't know how long it'll take, and it'll just be a perfect, perfect way to, I guess, uh, start off our activities for the event for it, Monday. It's going to be great. I mean, to, to be able to get... You know, all of or, the, or as many people as we can in the group in this picture, you know, a thousand people getting together for Epcot. You're right. It's going to be a, a really neat photo. And there's going to be opportunities later on for people to purchase the photo or, or get the photo, whether it be on a DVD or a photo CD or whatever else you have planned that uh, is going to be available to people who are participating. Right. Right. We're, we're working on a couple of different things. Right now, we have we have two different options set up, but I do like the idea of photo distribution later on. We'll we'll figure that out. We might set up a server where you purchase the photos. I don't know. I'll have to figure that out. Yeah, we're not going to be uh, having everybody, you know, a thousand cameras being passed around to take right. take one with my camera, take one with my camera. So that's that's something that we wanted to make sure everybody realizes. This isn't something where everyone can ask you to take the photos and hold. We're going to do this very quickly um, so that we're not a problem with Disney. We're not blocking their walkway or anything. This is going to be very quick, very orderly. Um, we'll have one or two people taking the photos. And after that, we will save those and have them distributed later on. Um, we have two. Uh, we have two right now ideas which both of which the, the profits will go directly towards the Dream Team. Um, one is that we're working on a scrapbook, and then we also have our videographer, our official videographer, who will be making a professional quality DVD. And what we will do for that uh, is we're working into the price. Obviously, you have to cover the charges of making the DVD, um, but we'll add in a couple of extra dollars, and that will go towards the Dream Team, which is what we're considering our charity portion of the event. And I, I just want to promote that. That's something that we really feel strongly about. Uh, having a charity aspect to our event just is really a great way to show Disney that we're out for more than just showing that we care about Epcot. We're, we're caring about the world and uh, the, the funds that this will go to will help uh, a very good cause. Lou, you might want to explain that. Yeah, basically the, the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team project is something I set up a couple of years ago in order to try and help um, kids now get a chance to visit Disney World. You know, people who, who have, um, you know, serious life-threatening illnesses. And uh, along the way, it's grown to something more than I have expected. Um, we've been able to send a number of families. We're now working directly with sending the funds to Make-A-Wish Foundation through um, the FirstGiving.com website. So... I think it's really wonderful what you're doing, and Adam, it's really kind of a testament to what you always say: is it's the unity of the community. We're looking to give back, and I'm really happy to be, you know, to be a part of it in this regard. So it's it's always a pleasure, and something that is truly heartwarming, and to be a part of that in itself is just a pleasure. So that's uh, I think that's it's great. one of those things that I'm just glad to do. Well, thank you. I, I think it's wonderful, too. But there's uh, before we go, there's, there's two other events on Monday we should mention, in addition to the Illuminations dessert party. 
and we're going to do two other attractions. And again, we've had these kind of spread out. This way people don't feel rushed to go from one to the other. At 2 o'clock, there's going to be a Journey into Imagination group ride. Obviously, that's a fan favorite for, for you know adults and kids alike, um, especially kind of the retro feel with everything going on with Imagination. And at 5 o'clock, we're going to try and do an American Adventure Pavilion meet and see the new film as well as the exhibits that are in there as well. Plus, you have it when you, if you're looking to go get something to eat, food and wine is going on, so you can walk around and snack from all the different kiosks. So, needless to say, Adam, uh, to, to say that I'm excited about this and looking forward to this, not only because of what Disney's doing, but because of what we're doing and, and how important the day really is, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to put a link up in the show notes to your website where everybody can take a look and print out the uh, the schedule so they can see exactly what's going on. Thank you very much for coming on. I'm really looking forward to this, and uh, it's it's going to be a really, uh, like you said, an important special day. Thank you very much, Lou. I just want to make a little small side note before I leave. If anyone has not been able to sign up yet and they're still looking to sign up, um, it's sort of hard to shut out people. Uh, obviously, there has to be a cutoff. I'm saying by September 25th, I won't take any last-minute registrations. But if there's any of you that have not been able to sign up because you missed our deadline, please drop me an email. Uh, Lou, I, I think you can give them my email in the show notes. If you send me an email filling out the questions that are still on our registration page, we removed our submit button so you can't submit the form yourself. But if you could send me the answers, I will be happy to add you to our roster because everyone deserves to be a part of this and that's what celebration 25 is all about so if there's anyone that still hasn't been able to get in please do not hesitate hurry and get your information in so that we can add you and hey with a thousand people coming what's a few more here and there no big deal so <laughs> i everyone that's there is going to make a difference so the more the better is the best phrase that we can assign to this. Exactly. And like I said, we've got uh, giveaways to give everybody, so it's really going to be a lot of fun. Adam Roth from DreamFinder Forever, co-founder of the Celebration 25 event. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I look forward to seeing you in just a couple of weeks. Thank you very much again for this opportunity, Lou. We are so glad to have you working with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Well, hello there, WDW Radio Show listeners. Eric Hollister from Geomouse.com here for an update. Challenge number five in our WDW Lou Mangello Half Marathon. Please don't sweep me before I'm finished challenge. We want to thank Matt Hotchburgosaurus Rex from MGMstudios.org and WDW Today for his help in last week's contest. We want to thank everybody also for their submissions. For everyone wondering where that dog statue was from, it was from the Tune-In Lounge at the 50s Primetime Cafe. So if you did have 50s Primetime Cafe or Tune-In Lounge, we did accept your answer. We pulled all of those answers together, all those submissions, drew a name, and we are happy to say that mile marker number five's winner is Jennifer Davis. And Jennifer Davis has decided to name her mile marker as Grim Grinning Ghosts. 
So, in recognition of her victory, we will be giving her both Walt Disney World Trivia Books Volumes 1 and 2 signed by Lou Mangiello, a DisneyWorldTrivia.com t-shirt, DisneyWorldTrivia.com lanyard and trading pin, both the Mickey and Minnie Year of a Million Dreams plush figures. She will also receive a certificate of dedication for mile marker number 5. Again, the name will be Grim Grinning Ghosts. We'll post that up on GeoMouse.com. And finally, uh, GeoMouse.com will donate $100 to the Dream Team Project. So stay tuned. Again, congratulations to Jennifer. Stay tuned for later in the show when we introduce challenge number six along with Jeff Pepper. And we're going to send it back to Lou for now and the WDW Radio Show. With so much of the discussion lately about Epcot Center's 25th anniversary, it seems that most of the talk really is about Future World and original pavilions, lost attractions, and timeless classics. But we really shouldn't forget about the other half of Epcot, and that's World Showcase. So this week, as part of our continuing Epcot retrospective slash DSI series, we're going to highlight one of my favorite pavilions on the promenade, and that's Japan. And like all the pavilions here, it's rich in detail and story and design, and it's something not to be walked by, but explored and appreciated. So Jeff Pepper, magnifying glass in one hand, Figment Plush in the other, is here, as always, ready to tackle the task at hand. Jeff, welcome, of course. Konnichiwa, Louis on. Da domo origato, Mr. Roboto. Ah, Louis, you're so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm so ashamed, because I, I, part of the reason why I love this pavilion so much is because I love the Japanese culture uh, on so many different levels for so many different reasons, and I'm just looking forward to the day that I can go out to the real Japan and experience, but uh, for me, the Japan Pavilion at Epcot is a, uh, is a pretty good kind of stand-in for the time being. It's, it's, a, it's a great place, I mean, it's very immersive, and it's kind of bittersweet, as we'll talk about, because it could have been much, much more... That even what we have is so truly wonderful, the atmosphere, and as you said, it it really takes you to Japan, as it were. Yeah, again, because like, and we'll we'll touch on what's missing, and you'll be able to maybe kind of see um, what could have been. But it the, the pavilion is beautiful, and again, it does tell a story, and it's the details that are are in this pavilion that really make it something special, one of my favorites. So let's kind of get right into it and talk about the pavilion. What I really did. Jeff was kind of divided up into three distinct areas because that's the way the pavilion is presented. There's the east side, west side, and the rear. But before we get off the promenade, we obviously mentioned the Tory Gate that stands in the water. Um, that symbolizes honor, and it's modeled after the Itsukushima Shrine in Hiroshima Bay. And I'm sure that will be the first of many times we butcher some of the names here, so I'm going to apologize in advance. Yes, please forgive us and don't deluge us with uh, voicemails and and forum posts. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love the Tory Gate, and, and I love standing on the um, on the pavilion side of it and looking through because you can see Spaceship Earth. You got a direct shot of Spaceship Earth, and it's a great place to watch illuminations. And it, it, I like how it just extends the pavilion out to the actual uh, shore of the lake. 
And and a little detail again, you know, it's like looking at the garbage cans. If you look at the bottom of the Tory gate, you'll see that it looks weathered. You see it looks aged. You see that there's fake barnacles on there to really give you the impression that it's been there for hundreds of years and really kind of dating it. And, and you'll see that um, carries through through the entire pavilion. That that, that again that that attention to detail. But the the real icon of the official icon of the pavilion is the blue-roofed pagoda. And that's a five-story building, like all the pavilions on World Showcase. Nothing is over five stories. It's 83 foot tall. It's the Goju Notu pagoda, and it was inspired by the 7th century Hori... Oh, boy. Horiyuji Shrine at Nara. <laughs> now, the important thing here is when you said that it was five stories, you know, in, in line with Epcot, but it's also five-tiered because it specifically represents uh, elements uh, that the Buddhists believe... Uh, it produced, I'm sorry, stumbling here, but earth, water, fire, wind, and sky. Right. And on top of the pavilion, and you really have to kind of either get a, a strong camera lens to be able to see, there's a small bronze nine-ringed spire, and that's known as a sorin, and that has uh, gold wind chimes and a nice little kind of water flame that's on top of there. And again, it's that, that very, very important uh, attention to detail and meaning, and that's the one thing about the Japan pavilion, there's meaning behind everything that you see here. One big giant feng shui. <laughs> Is that Chinese or Japanese? Ah, anyway. Somebody will tell us, won't they? <laughs> I'm sure. That's Jeff Pepper at 27. <laughs> but let's let's get into the pavilion itself, and we'll start on the west west side. And that building, that's the the big building on the west side, is based on the Shinsen Shinsenden, which was a uh, inspired by the ceremonial hall of the Imperial Palace over in Kyoto, Japan. Yeah, that is in, as I was, when we were talking about this just prior to reporting, I was getting confused. And that was, like you said, the Imperial Palace. To give the reference point, that is where the restaurants and on the bottom level, the Mitsukoshi uh, store is. Right. This basically represents the commerce side of Japan. And you'll see the other elements, the, the east side and the rear also are really representative of other elements in the Japanese culture. This represents the commercial side because you have the Mutsukoshi department store downstairs, the restaurants upstairs. And and I guess, well, let's talk about Mutsukoshi first. Um, It's actually based and named after one of the oldest department stores in the world, which dates back over 300 years. It's also, it's one of the largest stores in Japan. It's also one of the largest stores in all of Epcot. And um, it's really kind of embodies the meaning of a department store because they have everything in there from not only um, kind of an all-in-one shopping venue, but there's usually restaurants or sometimes there's a hotel. Um, there's one that has the, uh, it's the largest retail facility in all of Taiwan. One of them has 14 floors above it. There's there's 22 elevators. Uh, I mean, so you're not talking about, you know, your local Walmart. Um, you're talking about something on a completely different scale. And obviously Epcot's version is a little bit smaller, but they have a great, I mean, I love shopping here because they have a great variety of, of all kinds of souvenirs from clothing to bonsai trees to uh, a lot of wonderful books. Um, I know a lot of anime stuff. I know you and your family and your kids are really into some of the anime stuff. Yeah, we're, we have some, some big Naruto fans. And if, uh, if you have uh, kids that are into Hello Kitty, you will find Hello Kitty there in abundance. <clears throat> they also have, uh, they recently opened a little bit more of a high-end jewelry um, store section of the store. You can also... Uh, do one of the things where you can purchase a, um, 
you, you know, purchase the oyster and you see what kind of pearls inside. Sometimes you get two and you can make a piece of jewelry out of it. Uh, that store expanded a little bit in 1984, but for the most part has remained uh, pretty much the same way. And again, one of the things I like doing there, Jeff, when I go is uh, all the way in the back, there is a sake bar and they also have a lot of prepackaged Japanese food. They have odd things to us like shrimp flavored potato, you know, shrimp flavored chips and a lot of dried um, fish products and stuff like that. But it's really, really good. And I like kind of um, exploring and trying out some of the different things that you can get there that obviously you can't get anywhere else. But speaking of dining, I'm a huge fan of Japanese food. I'm a big sushi fan and I love uh, Japanese food. And these are some of the best restaurants, I think, or at least they were some of the best restaurants in World Showcase. And that's the Mitsukoshi Teppanyaki and the old Matsunoma Lounge and Tempura Kiku. Now, I've always been confused a little bit by this, and I, so I need you to explain it to me because I we ate there for the first time on our uh, last trip, and we ate at Tempanyaki, I believe, which was is the where you sit all around the table, like your traditional Japanese restaurant that you find across the United States, where they actually the chef prepares the food. For is that correct? Right. That's that's the Tepin style of cooking, right? So now explain the other two to me because I've always been confused that there were actually separate entities up there. Right. Well, there was the, the Matsunoma Lounge, uh, which is really just kind of – you can get sushi. Uh, you can get some tempura, things like that, really more of a, of a casual, smaller place. And there was also tempura kiku um, where you were obviously served um, kind of the batter-dipped tempura things you can get, um, seafood and beef and chicken and things like that. Those now – all these restaurants are in a state of change right now. They're all closed because Mitsukoshi Teppanyaki has been completely gutted and it's going to reopen under a new name called Teppan Ito, although it's going to be the same style of cooking. You're going to sit around those horseshoe-shaped tables with the grill right in front of you. Um, you know, it's entertainment as well as a great dining experience. Matsunoma and Tempuru are going to be replaced by a single sushi-centric restaurant called Tokyo Dining. And it's, it's kind of unsure. Their opening dates have been kind of pushed back, uh, back and forth. We're looking maybe November. But again, no date certain for that um, to, to, to open as yet. So I'm, I'm being a sushi fan. I'm really, really looking forward to these new dining experiences open up over in Japan. Yes, I am as well because we, we really wanted to go back this, this fall again. And unfortunately, we can't. Now, the, on the opposite side, you have a very different type of experience. I mean, very different than, than the big um, buildings here. The east side of the pavilion really is focused around the traditional Japanese formal garden. And you'll see that what it's really referring to here is the religious aspects and the cultural aspects and the, na the nature of Japan and, and, and the people. There's a lot of water here. There's a waterfall. There's a waterfall that kind of leads into a koi pond. Um, there's a very uh, long flowing stream, and you can see you can actually follow the stream all the way from the Yakaturi House all the way down to the koi pond. This is really kind of a balance of, of energy and serenity and things like that. Um, there's a lot of beautiful small bridges. Um, one is a little wooden bridge. It's a bamboo bridge. Um, beautiful at night. Absolutely beautiful. There's the hanging lanterns. I really really like this pavilion at night. Yeah, and the Yakitori House is important because here again, you know, we have something that is just not a simple building they built in a specific style. It's actually based on something in Japan, and it's a, based on, it's a smaller version of the Shokantei, and it's a tea house that's in the Kyoto Imperial Villa Gardens. 
Yeah, and it's a very simple but elegant style of the Japanese architect. Uh, according to my notes, the, the architect describes this style as one that is best viewed by the romantic light of an autumn moon. I like to add with some good sushi and sake in hand. But the <laughs> Yakitori House, again, another one of my favorite places to go and eat, especially for lunch. Uh, you, ha- you There's a lot of different things there. You can get sushi. You can get some um, udon noodles. There's beef and chicken. Very nice. You can go sit outside uh, in the covered area by the gardens. Very, very quiet. Very out of the way. Uh, one of my favorite places to eat probably in all of Epcot. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I ate there on my last trip. But the, the, the important part, like I said, about this side of the pavilion is the horticultural aspect and the plants and, and the beautiful gardens, all of which that have meaning. I mean, the, the Japanese uh, gardens go back thousands of years. And again, everything has a very important purpose and everything has a meaning behind it. Uh, the, the kind of cool trivia fact is that um, a lot of the, the plants there are fortunately or unfortunately um, replacements of ones that you really would find in Japan because obviously the Florida climate would not be one that would uh, allow these Japanese plants to survive. But um, unlike a lot of the other pavilions in World Showcase, about 90% of the plants are actually native to Japan. But like, you know, like I said, Jeff, gardening really is an art form, and you can really see it here um, so well. And everything has meanings. You know, the rocks and the, and the streams and the pools represent the earth and the water, which really is kind of the life's source. Um, like you said, when we were talking about the pagoda, how important all these things are in, in the Japanese culture. But in the back of the pavilion, if you look really closely, you'll see it's actually designed to look like a fortress. And it's modeled after, and I'm going to apologize in advance. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not even going to say it in Japanese, but it, it means the white egret castle. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, it's modeled after the Shirasagijo above the Himji city with the Nijo entranceway. How's that? Whoa! Yeah, huh? pretty good. Domo Origato. You, you, you can't do that more than once. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So let's move on and talk about the the white egret castle and uh, and and what it really kind of makes reference to. Well, they're famous for their hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Keep going. I'm I'm not stopping. We're continuing to record. (laughs) Well, yeah, Jeff, just like the White Castle that you can find on Route 9 here in New Jersey, the style of this castle dates back from the mid-1300s, where where these kind of uh, castles were really prevalent. They really kind of dominated the countryside uh, in order to protect the people as well as the ports. A lot of times the the inhabitants um, of the town were able to find refuge um, if the if the town was being attacked and things like that, so um, these and, and like the one in Himje is one of the best preserved castles in Japan, and it really kind of is a, is a testament to how well they were built and um, and how strong they were. But you know, we talked about one side of the pavilion representing kind of the the nature and the culture, and the other side representing the commerce. Well, this really represents the the history of it and the politics and and the you know the long. Uh, very storied history of Japan and the people, and that's kind of what this part of the fortress deals with. And, and after you kind of get into, you, you kind of cross that bridge, and you kind of goes over the moat, and you see those two large, beautiful samurai warrior sculptures. This is where one of the first attractions in uh, the Japanese pavilion is is here for you. Yeah, that's the um, if you kind of you're going towards you know through as you're saying there, and you kind of make a left hand turn, you have the Bijutsukan Gallery. 
And that's since Epcot opened. That has been kind of a gallery of rotating exhibits and displays. And the current one that's there right now is really one of my favorites. Um, it's I think it's been there for about three years, and it's uh, called Tin Toys. And it's really neat because it's it's an interesting juxtaposition there when we're talking about feudal Japan, and then you have this display, and you walk in, and, and there's this giant tin robot that's right there at the entrance to the gallery, and it really reflects the popular culture of Japan in the 20th century. Uh, tin toys were something that the, the Japanese did not originate. They kind of imported them from Europe in the uh, early part of the 20th century, but sort of embraced them and then almost made them their own. Uh, they um, Japanese toy makers jumped on the bandwagon. So they have this very, very elaborate display. And it's, it's interesting because it involves all these type of traditional wind-up toys. Uh, you know, if everybody is familiar with tin toys, you kind of know it. Um, speaking of if you've seen the display, but it's it's just an amazing, amazing collection. It's um, again, once again, I don't want to you know butcher the pronunciation, but it's um, most of that is on loan from what who they call is Jap Japan's tin toy master, Terushiya Kitahara, and I hope I said that right. And um, he actually has seven toy museums in Japan and has almost 50,000 tin toys in his collection. And if you look through the display cases, you will see everything from uh, Godzilla to Disney characters to traditional Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, uh, lots of flying saucers, spacemen, and really the, the big icon of it are robots, the tin toy robots. But um, it, it's something that I've always really been fascinated with. And I, I know at some point this display is going to go away and it'll rotate in something new. But for I just I really like it. I almost wish it would stay permanently. Yeah, I remember they had the, the Japanese baseball exhibit beforehand, but the tin toy one, like I said, is really neat um, just because, like you said, the, the toys range everything from kind of documenting almost uh, Japanese folklore and culture to back, you know, to the 50s and 60s when things like you said, like robots and UFOs and aliens and spacemen were very popular. There's really a predominance of those kind of things. And it was neat to see and almost hunt for some of the vintage Disney ones that you can find in the exhibit as well. And it's really cool because it has it has an interesting contemporary Disney kind of connection in that uh, there is a video monitor in there that shows you just a, a small uh, kind of documentary that I believe features um, Kitahara. And the person that is hosting it is John Lasseter of Pixar. And John Lasseter is a very, very big toy collector. I believe he's a big tin toy collector. But he's also very, very much into Japanese popular culture. Um, he is very a big, big fan of Studio Ghibli anime. And so he was very a very appropriate fit for, for this display. Well, the thing that you don't realize, though, when you go into the gallery or when you go into this section of the Mitsukoshi department store, which is part of the expansion uh, from a number of years ago, is how deep and how large the building is behind this. And unfortunately now, for the most part, it pretty much stands vacant because when this was built, when the pavilion was built and opened in 82, it was really meant to have a show building for what would possibly be up to three attractions that were planned at the beginning. And then obviously over time, uh, some of those attractions and, and concepts had changed. But when it opened, it was originally supposed to have a show in there called Meet the World. Yeah, Meet the World was very much structured like um, Carousel of Progress. It was in a rotating theater and it would take you through a number of uh, vignettes that would uh, basically trace the history of Japan. I mean, it would start at 
uh, prehistory, uh, volcanic action, how the islands were formed, and it would actually, through corresponding characters and music and such, would bring you up to contemporary times. And it was an attraction that ended up going in, uh, very ironically, into Tokyo Disneyland um, when it opened. It was a, a featured attraction there, and it's just it was kind of interesting because as it was developed, it was developed to basically teach we in America about the history of Japan, and ironically, it ends up in Japan. So it was kind of an, an odd fit. Yeah, this is something that I would have loved to have seen here. I, I've seen videos, uh, you know, dubbed in English of the Japanese version of Meet the World. And it, and you're right, it tells a really interesting story because the Japanese culture, like I said, maybe just to me, is fascinating how, uh, you know, going back from ancient Japan till the feudal times to when Japan became a very closed, very insular culture, and then modern Japan really you know, in the 40s kind of opened its doors to literally meet the world. And what you do is you kind of follow along, like you said, on these four little acts. And, you know, we talk about it being similar to the Carousel of Progress in that the theater is revolving. It's actually a little bit of the opposite in that uh, you sit, you, you sat in the center of the theater as opposed to now Carousel of Progress, you sit on the outside ring. Here you would have sat in the center of the theater and faced out. So you would have sat in the middle and kind of rotated around, which had a number of advantages. The The outside scenes would have remained stationary, but they were also, because they were on the outside, the circumference was larger. They allowed for a lot uh, larger scenes, a lot larger sets and stages. But you were kind of taken through this, you know, history of Japan by a young boy and girl led with this animated crane. And this is where it also kind of had some sort of a relationship with the American adventure because it not only had animation, it had projection screens, it had live action, and it also had audio animatronics figures. So you really kind of got all these different elements that made up the show. And uh, really, really interesting, really fascinating. You should go out online, where I'll put some links up in the show notes to where you can see um, the Meet the World show. And it's really a shame that we didn't get it over here. And it actually closed in, um, in Tokyo back in June of 2002. And of course, like every other attraction, was music was written by the Sherman Brothers. And and you think, you know, they would have just given it to us because we did give them Mickey Mouse review. You know, there well, should be balance. I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I, <laughs> you know, there, there's... I've read in a number of places rumors as to why this wasn't built. And again, it always comes... You've heard things about it possibly being money. I also heard that there were some structural issues as far as when the pavilion was constructed... Uh, either plans weren't followed correctly or the blueprints were incorrect. So they kind of had to temporarily shell the project in order to get Epcot and the pavilion to open on time. And for one reason or another, it was never uh, built. But, you know, in the long run, it looked at, you know, for a certain period of time, Jeff, as this mistake or this decision not to put Meet the World in here would have been a benefit because we were going to get, you know, one or more than one of a couple of really cool attractions that unfortunately never made it off the drawing board. Yeah, we, we had actually, you know, we had the whole mythology of mountains coming into Epcot, you know, primarily focused around, you know, World Showcase. And, you know, we had the, there was the concept of the Swiss Matterhorn being uh, floated out there for a Swiss pavilion. But for the longest time, there was talk of a Mount Fuji type thrill ride that I think was going to be modeled similarly to a Matterhorn type type attraction. Right. It, it was going to be an indoor roller coaster. It was also going to go outside the track, much like the Matterhorn does. Um, fortunately, I think some of the concepts, some of the things they were thinking based on the early concept drawings may have made their way over to Expedition Everest. Um, 
And again, we've talked about the Fuji versus Kodak debate and, and how Kodak really kind of played its heavy hand and not allowed Fuji to come in here and sponsor this attraction, which is primarily really the reason why this wasn't this one wasn't built. Again, although there is so much room behind this pavilion, um, it really would have been a wonderful weenie to have um, in World Showcase. But yeah, and then there's there's something else that that is out there, and it's just this one piece of concept art that floats around, and it features kind of a shopping district and a bullet train type concept ride and uh, that has always fascinated me because again it would have dem it would have been a very sort of almost a pavilion behind the pavilion if you would walk through the um, the gate there the castle gate onto the other side you would have entered this whole other kind of area that was also very very dramatically conceived as a uh, according to this, you know, concept art. Yeah, you the, the landscape in the back would have been much, much different than what you saw on the promenade side of the pavilion. And you would have seen basically this kind of bullet train that would be sticking out of um, this this giant structure. And you would, you would board this train and you'd really have these animated scenes in lieu of windows that would really take you through uh, you know, the Japanese culture, countryside and the Jap and Japanese history, uh, whatnot. There would be uh, very, very large windows, and it really would have given you the feeling of being standing on the bullet train uh, in Japan. And you also made reference to the shopping district. This is something I think I would have been, I would have liked to have seen uh, almost as much, if not more so, than this, because it was really going to reflect the Ginza shopping district. And in Tokyo, which is a very, very big entertainment district, it's really it's probably it's Tokyo's most famous shopping area, uh, with you know high-end restaurants, high-end hotels, lots of department stores and art galleries. Um, the nightlife here, you know, is legendary. The Ginza nightlife, and it, it little geeky fact here: one square meter of land in in the Ginza district is worth more than 10 million yen, which is about $100,000, which makes it really one of the most real estate, most expensive real estate in Japan, if, if maybe um, anywhere in the world. So, Was uh, was your impression, based on the con concept art and everything out there, because it's kind of was mine, I was just curious if you agreed with me, that this was going to be almost totally interior, kind of like the way Mexico is? You know, it was all going to be inside, but made to simulate an exterior scene? Yeah, I mean, it's specifically the bullet train, again, when we talk about that concept art, I'll try and put both of these up in the show notes so you can get an idea of what we're talking about. There's not a lot else that's out there to really give you an idea. Uh, I would have, I would assume that this shopping district would have been enclosed just based on the way the pavilion is laid out right now. Um, and it just would have been something spectacular if you've ever... Because I, I I, I'm picturing it almost sort of like Mexico in that... Because that that shopping area in Tokyo was just so neon light, kind of bright light intensive that it would have been a night scene, very much lit up and kind of evocative of that kind of same feel that Epcot or I mean Mexico gives you. Right, and and you would hope or you would believe or or maybe just wish that something like this maybe in some form or fashion will come in because so much of the fortress and the show building back there is left unused. And again, I'll put a link up in the show notes where you can kind of look online and get one of those bird's eye views of the Japanese pavilion and, and see just how big it is. I mean, it kind of, it almost rivals the size of the American Adventure Building. And you know how large that is and what kind of uh, structure is in there and, and theater is in there. But um, although we didn't get the, the roller coaster, we didn't get the, um, the Ginza District, there are other attractions other than the tin toy exhibit to see here, other than just looking around and looking at the gardens 
And I consider these things attractions because they're things that I think are fascinating. And one attraction is just a person. It's just, a, you know, a single woman and her name is Miyuki. And she's the, le- the legendary candy artist that's found uh, by the Mitsukoshi department store a number of times a day. Yeah, um, it's, it's fun because I had never been familiar with this or aware of it until coming to Epcot. But what this, it's kind of, they call it candy artistry. And it dates back over 250 years from Japan's Edo era. And she actually apprenticed, I believe, with her grandfather. Um, and she is, I believe, the only woman in the world that is, is trained this way. Is that not correct? Right. And there's only, 20, there's only 20 people in the world who actually perform this art. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just amazing to, to see her actually do it. And we've been fortunate to see it a couple of times. It's all kind of a matter of time and just being there at the right time. And I do believe she gives away what she makes. Yeah, and I was going to say, it's free. I mean, it's actually something, and it is, it's edible, but it is a piece of art. And if you've ever had a chance to see Miyuki, she uses nothing but her hands and a, this tiny little piece of scissors. And she rolls out these this little, you know, pad of rice dough. And she turns it into rabbits and monkeys and dragons and eagles and birds. And I mean, she makes them in a matter of seconds in all different colors. And she gives them to kids and puts them on a stick. And I mean, they're, they're truly beautiful and it's free and, and Miyuki can really be considered a, a hidden treasure of, of uh, Walt Disney World herself because that's how good I think she is. Uh, it's amazing to see. And if you check the times guide when you go to Epcot, you'll see she's out a number of times a, a week. I think the only day that she's off is um, maybe Sunday, Saturday or Sunday, I think is her, is her only day off. But uh, again, timing being everything, check your times guide. There's something else I love in, in Japan and that's the music. And that comes from the Matsuritsa drummers that are over by the pagoda, pagoda on the east side. Yeah, you know, I've always loved the entertainment offerings in Japan. There used to be uh, a group there called One World Taiko, which had this huge. It was a single drum with two sides, and were um, they were beating on on both sides. And Jeff, I don't know if you remember, um, they were kind of like these people on stilts that were dressed as birds. They had these very very vibrant colors. They were pinks and purples. Uh, they almost looked as though they were taken out of the Tapestry of Nations or Tapestry of Dreams parade, but they were um, specific to the, the Japan Pavilion. This was from Lou's 60s. Kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Lou, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> I wasn't drinking around the world, I swear. I, re- I really do remember. Somebody please back me up on that. But um, the last thing I think we should just, just bear mentioning, Jeff, is during um, the holiday season, there's something called Holiday Around the World where holiday storytellers from each pavilion come out and they tell you the story of their version of or of Christmas or how they celebrate the holidays and, and in Japan it's Oshiga, Oshigatsu which uh, is really celebrating the Japanese New Year and uh, he comes out and he talks about the Daruma doll and kind of the, the whole history of that and the, basically the person that comes out is a little Daruma seller and he explains what you know how the Daruma doll works and uh, and, and rings the bell and things like that. Really something neat. If, you're, if you happen to be down there for Mouse Fest or you happen down there for the holidays, you should definitely go and, and check it out. But Jeff, like I said, for so many reasons, for the food and for the architecture and the culture and the shopping and, and everything else, um, I really think Japan is one of World Showcase's finest pavilions. Yeah, and like you said, you know, architecturally and landscaping, it's just beautiful. Um, just like you said, very immersive. And just a, it's one of the places I just like to go and just sit down and hang out. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, especially at night, that's why one of our meets during Mouse Fest 
is actually we're going to watch illuminations from by the Tory gate in Japan just because I, I love the pavilion so much at night. And again, like we say with all these segments, take your time and go through. Even if you're not eating there, even if you're not interested in tin toys, take your time and wander through and look at the pagoda and look at the gardens and just kind of appreciate all the detail and, and all the purpose and meaning that was behind uh, everything you see. And, and by all means, I always say too, talk to the cast members. The cast members there, like everywhere in World Showcase, are from Japan. So they'll be able to explain some more about the culture and about what you see in the pavilion. So Jeff, as always, thank you for taking this uh, DSI slash Epcot retrospective series with me. And uh, konnichiwa, Pepper-san. Sayonara, Louis-san. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Have a good one. <laughs> It's time once again for our Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge. This time, it's the sixth in the series. Of course, Eric Hollister from GeoMouse, the man behind the marathon magic, is back. Eric, welcome back, buddy. Thank you, Lou. Good to be here. And this time, Eric, you brought in another friend of the show, our good buddy, Jeff Pepper. Hey, guys. How's it going? This is going to be interesting to see Jeff's take on how he's going to challenge the listeners for this uh, Half Marathon Challenge. So what have the two of you guys cooked up this week? Well, I will let Jeff take it away. Well, uh, since everybody knows my reputation for having a great love of Disney characters, I decided to do what we'll call the character challenge. And this is going to involve uh, five questions, five trivia questions that involve characters. And they all are a part of some place in Walt Disney World. So in other words, to find the answer to these questions, you need to um, just get your bearings around Walt Disney World and see where where these references are too so whenever you're ready you know i'm a little bit disappointed along with probably many of the listeners because i was so expecting this to be some sort of garbage can challenge (laughs) (laughs) or crates you're gonna say crate (laughs) well jeff does have another challenge coming up down the road so maybe that'll be next one oh okay great i spoiled the surprise sorry all right so go ahead ready question number one who is the rowdiest rooster on radio Question number two. In Mickey's Garage in Toontown Fair, there is an autobiography of what Disney animated cartoon character? Mm. Question number three. Where in the Walt Disney World Resort can you find reference to the character of Captain Bones? And that Bones is spelled B-O-N-Z. Captain Bones. Hmm. Okay. All right. And, man, okay. Nice. <laughs> Question it's number not Mad <laughs> <laughs> Question number four. Texas John Slaughter has posted a ten thousand dollars in trading pins reward for what thieving character? That's Matt Hotchberg. <laughs> <laughs> the thieving character or the question? <laughs> and the final question. Question number five. What is the atomic number of Gufunium? So there you have it. The five questions. And uh, I guess Eric can explain the rules and regulations thereof. Please submit all correct answers to marathon at wdwradio.com. You have until midnight on September the 26th to get all your answers in. 
everyone who gets all five correctly will be pooled together. We will randomly draw a winner. And the winner will receive this week both volumes one and two of the Walt Disney World trivia book by Lou Mangello, a DisneyWorldTrivia.com t-shirt, both the lanyard and trading pits, courtesy of DisneyWorldTrivia.com. This week, we're going to add a couple more books to your library collection. Uh, we're going to throw in The Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean from the Magic Kingdom to the Movies by Jason Sorrell. Both great books, especially if you like the DSI segments. These books really go into detail about the background of these attractions. And finally, the winner will get a certificate to name mile marker number six. We're almost halfway home, so please submit your uh, mile marker names. And finally, geomouse.com will submit will uh, donate $100 to the Dream Team Project. As I understand, we are now working on our third kid to send to Walt Disney World, courtesy of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Am I correct, Lou? Yeah, we hit the uh, the $12,000 mark very quickly, actually, a lot quicker than I thought. And according to Make-A-Wish, it, it costs about $6,000 or so to send a child to grant a wish to, to Walt Disney World. So uh, thanks to you, Eric, and everybody else that's been donating, we hit the mark pretty quickly, especially after Magic Meets. So we're going to up that... Um, we're going to up that goal a little bit and kind of start working on sending an, another child. So there it is, folks. Mile marker number six. We're almost halfway home. Lou, I'm sure your your training has just been going exquisitely. And, of course, obviously, Jeff, want to thank you for uh, your help and this particular challenge. Uh, it should be fun. The challenges seem to get more challenging as we go along, but it never ceases to amaze me that the listeners are usually on cue and usually get pretty close or, if not, dead on with the answers. My pleasure, and good luck to everybody out there. Yeah, I was with you for a while until you started talking about Goofonium. I was looking at my periodic table of the elements, and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm in the wrong, totally in the wrong section. So, yeah, this is a good one, Jeff. Thanks very much. Eric Collister from Geomouse.com. Thank you as well, and uh, I'll see you guys at the finish line. Thanks, Luke. All right. Thanks. Thank you to everybody who's been sending in emails. I know I have a lot to get to and I'm far behind. So let's go ahead and get started. See how many we can get through this week. The first comes from Jennifer Vanderveen who writes, Lou, I've become addicted to the show and love all the interviews and information. I'm planning a quick trip in January and have a quick question. If you visit a park with evening extra magic hours on the last day of your stay, can you take advantage of extra magic hours even though you're not staying in a resort that night? I'm only getting a two-day trip, so I'm trying to maximize my pack time. Again, that's from Jennifer. Jennifer, uh, glad uh, you're enjoying the show. And as for your question, yes, I believe on the last day of your stay, you still can take advantage of both the Erling and evening extra magic hours. Because I believe the last day of your stay, the day that you check out, still counts as a day of your visit to Disney. So you should be able to take advantage of both the, uh, the early and the evening. Andy in Greenville, South Carolina writes and says, Lou, I really enjoy listening to your podcast. Not only is it informative, but entertaining as well. I have to admit that I found out about your podcast from WDW Today. No, no worries. I still have time to listen to both. That's because mine is six hours and theirs is 15 minutes. Anyway, I'm writing because I've heard of various people speak of a secret entrance into Disney's Animal Kingdom through the Rainforest Cafe. I can't seem to location, locate any information about there being such a thing, hence it being a secret. So I was wondering if you might know what this is about. My family and I will be on a trip uh, from September 22nd through September 30th. I thought about sending this question to Hotsburg, but I'm hoping for a quick response. 
Insert joke on Matt's delayed email response times here. Congrats on the recent award and keep up the good work. Olu, thanks, Andy. Andy, thank you very much. Matt, my apologies. Those were Andy's comments, not mine. Anyway, you're right. There is really a secret, quote-unquote, entrance at the Rainforest Cafe. What that means is you can go to the Rainforest Cafe for breakfast, and rather than waiting online uh, in the regular park entrance line over at Disney's Animal Kingdom, even if you're not eating at the Rainforest Cafe, you can walk through... And there is a park entrance there. So if the lines there are a little bit long, you can cut through Rainforest Cafe, get entrance that way without uh, without having to avoid uh, all the long lines. Again, even if you're not really eating over at Rainforest. The next email is from Nick from Connecticut who says, Lou, I'm a big fan of improvisational theater and was blown away at the Adventurers Club. Are there any other attractions that are unscripted? How much of the Jungle Cruise is off the cuff? Also, my family encountered Push the Talking Trash Can during our last visit. Are there any other notable impromptu encounters like this in the parks? Keep up the fantastic work. Nick, that's a really interesting question. And uh, for the most part, you got to remember, because Walt Disney World is really a big show, Disney is very careful to have its cast members pretty much keep to a script for the most part as much as possible. Uh, there are a few exceptions, and there is some leeway given in some of the attractions. Like you said, you mentioned the Adventurers Club. Uh, that, for the most part is a lot of impromptu. However, there is sort of a basic show outline that they follow. There is a schedule of events, and they do kind of um, keep to the same kind of things night after night. Um, Obviously, staying over at um, Pleasure Island, you can talk about the Comedy Warehouse, which is, of course, you know, all improvisational. Uh, As far as inside the parks, some of the things that pop to mind, uh, for example, might be the recent Muppet Mobile Labs. Again, for the most part, it keeps to a certain script, but because it's interactive with guests, it really depends on the guest interaction. Um, the Jungle Cruise, not you know, not impromptu really at all. They really keep to a certain script. There are some minor deviations. They do give cast members a, a little bit of option, kind of to choose what kind of version of the script sometimes they can you do. But um, not really much of it is off the cuff again, except for that guest interactive part. Uh, for the most part, I'd say look out for the Streetmosphere characters in uh, Magic Kingdom and Disney's MGM slash Hollywood Studios. People like Mayor Weaver or Scoop Sanderson or all the people that you'll see in and around uh, MGM. Those people have, again, a general guideline, sort of a general theme that they go with. But it's so much of it is interactive with the guest that that really determines kind of the course of how it goes and uh, again you'll get pretty much a different show each and every time you see those so uh, if I'm missing anything by all means email me let me know I'm sure I overlooked something but um, great question thank you next email says Lou oh gosh I'm sorry I think the guys at WDW today may have heard about our plan to ambush them at Mousefest because I sent them a question over a month and a half ago and still haven't heard back par for the course so even though you aren't a mathematical genius although geek dork nerd etc I'm going to go ahead and ask you. My annual passes are up for renewal, and what was curious if I should continue poning up for four APs. I get two adults and two children. Emily will be ten by then, but shh, we won't tell anybody. We go approximately eight times a year and visit the parks about 20 times. I'm also considering only getting seasonal passes, because after going in July and early September, I've sworn off in the summer and don't really like going during the week of Christmas. Do the seasonal passes also get me free parking? Sorry about all the questions. See you in December, and that comes from Steve Medina. Steve, thank you. WDW Today, guys, my apologies. But uh, you're basically asking about the difference. Well, let me ask you answer one question first. If you get a Florida seasonal pass, and again, the seasonal passes are only available to Florida residents, you do not get free parking at the theme parks. Now, as far as the differences between the annual pass and the Florida seasonal pass, for the most part, 
the entitlements are, are pretty much the same. Uh, you get a limited admission to all the parks, um, park hopping, etc. Now, there are blackout dates, like you said, for the Florida seasonal pass. So in 2007, for example, you wouldn't be able to go from March 31st to April 13th, June 9th to August 16th, and December 22nd to January 4th. In 2008, you're looking at about the 15th to the 28th of March, June 7th to August 14th, and December 21st through January 3rd. So you can't use your pass during those time frames. If you're definitely not going to be traveling during that time and don't really care about the, the free parking, then yeah, maybe getting the Florida pass and saving the money there is the way to go. But as far as your general question as to whether or not you should continue to get either an annual or seasonal pass, absolutely. You're definitely going enough times so that it makes sense for you dollar for dollar because your break-even point, you'll have passed probably by your 10th or 11th day uh, of the trip. So if you go in 20 times, by all means, the Florida resident seasonal pass or the annual pass definitely makes sense. Our next email comes from Joe in Norristown, Pennsylvania, not far from my alma mater, Villanova University. He's Disney Freak 10 on DisneyWorldTrivia.com forums and writes in, Lou, love the new show, but I need some help and thought of you first. As someone who's made numerous trips to the world and who's never afraid to give their opinion, my family and I just took a trip to Walt Disney World in June 2007. A family obligation has come up and I have the chance to go back the first week of December. This trip will only be my wife and myself, no kids. Unfortunately, it'll only be a short two-day trip because I need to be on the west coast of Florida on Saturday. We're flying in Wednesday the 5th and leaving Saturday the 8th. My question is, if you could only go to two parks during the holidays, what would they be? Also, is it worth the extra money for Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party? What resorts are worth visiting to see the decorations? Any help is appreciated. I know the time is at the beginning of Mouse Fest, so my wife and I would love to say hi. Thanks in advance. And again, that's from Joe from Norristown, Pennsylvania. Joe, that's a great question, and you are going at a great time of year. My answer is very easy and very simple because I think it's a no-brainer. I think the two parks that you should visit if you only have two days during the holidays are the Magic Kingdom and Epcot. And you're right, you are going to be there during Mouse Fest. So if you want to participate in some of the Mouse Fest events and go to Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party, which I highly recommend you go to, I'd say Thursday, go to the Magic Kingdom, stay late for Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party that night, join us, all the Mouse Festers are going to be there. And then I would say to go to Epcot on Friday for your second day during the holidays because each of the two parks has something special going on between the holiday decorations. Epcot is beautiful around the holidays. They have the lights of winter. They've got the candlelight processional. They've got holidays around the world. Uh, the music is is wonderful. Everything is just is extra special, uh, specifically in those two parks. So uh, as far as the other resorts, I'd say to go see the decorations. A lot of the resorts have some really, really nice decorations. Uh, the boardwalk resorts are very nicely done. But maybe just because you have a limited amount of time, and especially so you can go see the gingerbread house, I'd say to try and hit the uh, resort monorail uh, on the monorail line. Specifically, go see the Grand Floridian. They do have the gingerbread house as well as some other beautiful decorations up. So that definitely is worth taking a few minutes maybe uh, before or, or during the day, maybe on Thursday when you go to the Magic Kingdom. Stop by the monorail. Uh, stop by the monorail. How about stop by the Grand Floridian and uh, the Contemporary and Polynesian as well? Of course, we need an email about food. So this one comes from Chad, who writes, "Lou, love your show, and I've really become a Disney geek thanks to you and your guests. My wife thinks I'm just a little bit nuts now, but she wouldn't change it for the world." My question is regard to breakfast at Epcot during the International Food and Wine Festival. We will be making our second trip to Epcot during this wonderful event, and would like to know where we can grab a quick breakfast, such as espresso or a muffin. And the reason why I ask is because during the festival last year, Fountain View Espresso Bakery was there, was being used as a wine-tasting pavilion, and was not serving their typical fare. We were directed to Sunshine Seasons in the land, 
but which was good, but we were really looking forward to something a little bit more bistro in style. Since Future World opens prior to the World Showcase, would we be limited to where we can dine? I'm toying with the idea of starting our day at the Boardwalk Hotel and entering Epcot over there. Which would you suggest? And again, thanks. For, that's from Chad. Chad, you actually uh, read my mind because that's probably what I would suggest doing depending on where you're staying. What you might want to do is instead of looking for someplace like the Sunshine Seasons in Future World, go through the International Gateway entrance and there's some places that you can eat over at the Boardwalk. If you want to sit down, a uh, full kind of breakfast menu, uh, Spoodles is wonderful on the Boardwalk. If you want just a muffin and some coffee, the Boardwalk Bakery has some really great pastries and some different kinds of breads and whatnot. Uh, that you can get in the morning. You could also head on over to the Beach Club if you want to maybe go over to the Cape May Cafe, something like that. Um, but Because, yeah, you, like you said, your choices are very limited in Future World because nothing will be open uh, at World Showcase at that time. Keith Fischetti sent in the next question. It says, My wife and I are going down to Walt Disney World from October 4th through the 13th, and on Monday, October 8th, we have tickets to Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. Is it an unofficial rule that you have to dress up as a Disney character? Will my wife and I be shunned if we don't go into the parks in full Disney garb? Any assistance would be appreciated, and thanks as always for a great show. Look forward to a new show each week. Keith, thanks for the email, and what you should know is that whether you get dressed up or not, you're going to have a great time at the Halloween party. I really enjoy it. I think the parade and the fireworks are wonderful. But no, you will not be shunned or ridiculed if you don't go in Disney garb, but by the same token, you will not be shunned or ridiculed if you do go in full Disney garb, even if you go without kids. I went last year. I didn't get dressed up, but there were a lot of people there. Adults, especially a ton of pirates, a ton of princesses. Um, so you don't have to feel obligated one way or the other to get dressed up or not get dressed up. Nobody will look at you odd in either way. And uh, But again, if you're thinking about maybe going, wanting to get into the whole spirit, get dressed up, um, feel free because you, you will not be the only one, I promise you. Lorraine sent me in a quick question. It says, Lou, can you tell me what the average number of cars parked in a day at the, at the theme parks at Walt Disney World is? Lorraine, thanks for that question. It's hard to answer because Disney doesn't really publish those kind of numbers. And really, that, that number of, of cars varies wildly depending on the type, the times of year um, and how busy the parks are. But what I can tell you is that, for example, the Magic Kingdom holds about 11,324 cars. And by 10 o'clock on Christmas Day, we'll be fully booked. So that'll give you an idea of at least one extreme of how busy it does get in the parking lots. Gwendolyn wrote in and said, Lou, love the show and your books. But I have a question about the emu legs. My husband and co-workers swear that the turkey legs at Disney are really emu legs. I tried to tell him that this was just a rumor and he doesn't believe me. Can he clear this up? Hope to see you at Mouse Fest. Well, Gwendolyn, you are correct. They are actual big, delicious turkey legs. Uh, and that's there is no emu, I don't think, sold anywhere on property. Our last email is going to come from Matt Roche, who writes, Lou, congratulations again on winning the award for your podcast. I'm a huge fan and love listening while I'm at work. I had a question for you on my upcoming trip to Walt Disney World. My family and I are going this October and doing everything Halloween possible. I found out Disney provides haunted hayrides over at the Fort Wilderness Campground. However, after looking around for information, all I found were dates that were not consistent as to when the hayrides would take place. Can you shed any light on this matter? Any information given would be grateful. And again, that comes from Matt. Matt, Matt thank you very much. What you're talking about is... For over at Fort Wilderness Resort and Campground, every October, they do a haunted hayride based, based on the old legend of Sleepy Hollow. And the wagon ride has a story, uh, a storyteller who tells the story of Ichabod Crane, the Headless Horseman. It's a lot of fun. It takes place from about the middle of October 
through the end uh, almost every day. And rather than me list all the dates, I'll put them up in the show notes. They leave from Pioneer, Pioneer Hall around dusk, uh, and there's usually around six or so rides uh, per night. And they start around 7.30, and uh, a little bit later on in the year, as it gets closer to Halloween, they start around 6 o'clock. They depart about every 20 minutes or so. It's not all that expensive. It's $15 for an adult, $10 for a child who is under 10 uh, under three is obviously no charge at all. You can you can buy tickets the day of the that you want to go over at Fort Wilderness at the kennel from eight to five. Uh, again, as you get closer towards Halloween, they do start to sell out, um, and as you, they actually start to sell out very early in the day. So it's important that if you want to go to try and get your tickets in advance as much as possible, you can actually call 407-824-2734 for more information and to find out how to reserve your tickets. And uh, again, I'll put all these dates and the phone number in the show notes this week. And again, that's going to do it for the email section this week. If you have an email, you can send it in to lou at wdwradio.com. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I want to thank you for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, I want to thank Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com as well as Eric Hollister from geomouse.com. Head on over to our show notes page at wdwradio.com for links, photos, as well as previous episodes of the show. Don't forget that if you're going to be in Walt Disney World on Saturday, September 29th, the National Fantasy Fan Club is going to be holding their second annual convention and show and sale at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort. It's going to be open to the public at 10 a.m. and close at 5 p.m. There's free parking, so if you're around, if you're into Disney merchandise of all shapes and sizes and prices, come on by, even if you want to just come by and say hello. I'm going to have a table at the event, and I guess it's going to kind of serve as an almost little release party for me, as I'm going to have the first in my audio guides to Walt Disney World available on that date for the first time. The first CD, which I previously referred to as my mouse tour CDs, will be a guided tour of Main Street USA with additional CDs in the series to follow. So again, if you're in the area, come on by and say hello. Of course, there's much more coming up on upcoming shows, including a visit from another very special guest just in time for Epcot's 25th and so much more. I'll also have a few announcements about some other projects I've been working on, so stay tuned. If you're going to be at MouseFest, be sure you visit our MouseFest page for all of our meets. You can also check out Mouse Guest Weekly, their podcast this week, where Dan and Eric invited me on to talk about the meets I'll be hosting. You can also go to the show notes page for a link to our events page and go to mousefest.org for the full schedule, including Trivia Fest, PodFest, and the live DSI with me and Jeff Pepper. And if you're coming to MouseFest or getting ready to book any Disney vacation, I highly recommend contacting our friends at The Magic for Less Travel. For unsurpassed service, daily discount checking to assure you the best possible price, personalized vacation planning, and so much more, visit our show notes page for a link over to The Magic for Less Travel. As always, please keep emailing the show and calling in your voicemails. You can reach me at lou at wdwradio.com or the voicemail line is 206-202-4WDW. That's 4939. And come by our fun and friendly forums at disneyworldtrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney, including topics we covered on the show. If you like the show, please continue to review us in iTunes. And of course, please help spread the word. Thank you again for tuning in this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. So until next week, see ya. Hey, Lou, this is Tom Fantosi. 
I'm calling in regards to the Orange Bird segment on September the 4th show. And um, there's a website you can check out. I don't know if you have checked it out already. It's called Widen Your World. I don't know the exact address, but uh, if you just type in uh, Widen Your World on, say, a Google search engine, you should be able to find it. And uh, it's a restful haven for Walt Disney's world's deceased, deferred, and deflowered. Um, you should find a bit of information regarding the orange bird on that site. Thanks, Luke. Bye. Hi, Lou. This is Chip Joyce calling you from inside Pecosville's Cafe. We're coming down on the last couple hours of our eight-day trip here at Disney World and just wanted to call and say hello and thank you because this trip would not have been the rousing success that it was if it hadn't been for all the tips and tricks and things I learned from listening to your show. So thanks a lot, and I'll keep listening in hopes that our next trip will be sooner rather than later. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou. We love your show. Just calling to say to you that figments can be seen at Epcot across from Imagination Station. I don't know if you know this, but the information is there. There are small signs right outside the exit door, and they say, Meet Figment, and he is there. These days, it seems that he's been there from 9 a.m. to around 4 or 5 o'clock. He's got his own little area in which he lives, covered by rainbows and multicolored beauty of Figment and his imagination coming to life inside a container for where he is through these glass doors and people can see him but it is not well advertised and the cast members apparently know nothing about it and as Figment fans we're trying to get the word out to people that you can meet Figment he is still there right next to the ride and people should go over there and show him love so we can have him come back permanently and that maybe Lasseter can help us all get our Figment back my name is Lee Canzanieri. Look in your mailbox soon. We have a present that we're going to send to you. It'll be a one and only backpack in which any character will sign if you provide them a Sharpie and a space to sign. We have a backpack that was signed by every character that we've run into at Walt Disney World, and we're going to share a photo with you soon. So look for that in your mailbox. Thanks again. Bye. Manja, 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 hello. Mangelo, 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 manja, 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 jalo. Hi, Lou, and all you WDW radio listeners. Uh, this is Kenny uh, from West Palm Beach. I just ordered your books, and I thank you for your radio show, and look forward to seeing you on October 1st at Epcot. Uh, I was there when it opened, and too many more times to count since then. Um, just had a little bit I wanted to ask you about or a suggestion in the history of Epcot I think that there's a part that's being missed I think it's the software the games the movies um, I think that uh, there should, should be some sort of archive if not something on your website like the touch screen um, create your own roller coaster with the little beaver, and at the end you'd ask you to see, let's see how she flies, Orville. I think that that would be a great item to add to someone's website or just be an archive somewhere to where the public can get to it. There were so many different programs and software and interactive games throughout Epcot and all the parks throughout all the years 
that I think are sitting on someone's shelf somewhere and being neglected and not being exposed to the next generation of people who enjoy the parks. That's my two cents. Thank you again. Have a great day. Hey, Lou. It's Mark Craig from uh, Hand of Massachusetts. Love your show. Just thought I'd give you a little piece of information. I'm here in Animal Kingdom right now. Just got out of Finding Your Mother Musical. And uh, on the way out, I saw a few guys with suits on, so I decided to follow them and see what they were doing. Um, they all had fireworks badges on and went backstage. So, uh, possibility of a nighttime show in Animal Kingdom anytime soon? Okay, thought I'd let you know that it's all guys. Thanks. Hey, Lou, it's Mike in Central Florida. And um, listening to the podcast last week, you mentioned uh, Roman Catholic churches and churches in general in the Orlando or the uh, Walt Disney World area. Uh, I want to point some of your listeners to Mary, Queen of the Universe Shrine. That's a big building you see when you're traveling uh, west on I-4 towards Walt Disney World, just before the Marketplace exit, uh, right next to the Premier um, Outlet Mall. It's a beautiful uh, Roman Catholic shrine, and um, it's almost like a theme park. It's it's unbelievable. When uh, me and my wife moved down here in about 14 years ago, uh, it was still under construction, and um, it's really nice to um, visit this uh, shrine for Mass. They have a, a weekly Mass schedule, daily Mass schedule, uh, that you can see online if you go to www.maryqueenoftheuniverse.org. One word, dot org. And um, I believe if you click the link right there on the first page that says the Mass is at Walt Disney World, it gives you a little history of uh, when they started performing the Masses at Walt Disney World. Um, so it's um, really a great place to stop by. They have a great store uh, with a lot of different types of unique things that you can only get at shrines, different types of medallions. Um, and it's just a short taxi ride away. Like I said, it's just a little south of uh, the Marketplace area across um, Apopka Vineland Road. Hey, Lou, keep up the great work. The uh, podcasts are fantastic. And those other guys can't touch you with a 10-foot pole. Have a good day. Bye. And finally, in honor of the anniversary of 9-11, here are the Voices of Liberty. Who's rust? 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 Who's r